I remember really clearly when I became a mom, um, the fact that everyone in the hospital only called me mom. And I kept thinking, like, my name has to be on the paper that they're looking at right now. Like, it's on my chart. Why do they only call me mom? And why are they only talking to me and not my husband? And I really experienced an erasure of my identity and a real lack of care because Mm -hmm. people would ask how the baby is doing and there was not a lot of care for how I was doing. Hello and welcome to the Feminist Mom Podcast. I'm your host, Erin Spar. I'm a licensed therapist, feminist, and mother of two. Join me and my guests each week as we chat about what it's like mothering in today's society. We'll point out the double standards mothers face and unpack the conflicting societal messages we receive. We'll name out loud how the patriarchy and other systems of oppression impact our experiences of motherhood. This podcast is for you if you appreciate honest and smart conversations that will validate your experiences, promote discussion, and empower you to mother on your own terms. Hi, welcome back to the Feminist Mom Podcast. Today, I'll be sharing this conversation I had with Gemma Hartley. Gemma is a writing coach, a freelance journalist, and the author of Fed Up, Emotional Labor, Women, and the Way Forward. She has spoken about emotional labor and the mental load around the world, and her writing has been featured in Marie Claire, Harper's Bazaar, and the Washington Post, among others. Gemma is passionate about creating a world in which invisible and domestic labor is supported by both partners and public policy alike. So this was a really great conversation. I felt like Gemma and I were super aligned. We could talk probably for a long time. And we did cover a few different topics, but really centered the conversation around her work, uh, where she has been talking about emotional labor. Um, Gemma wrote an article in 2017 in Harper's Bazaar called Women Aren't Nags, We're Just Fed Up. Um, And then the sort of line under it, which I think is really good, is emotional labor is the unpaid job men still don't understand. Um, And here we are still talking about it. Um, That article really helped establish Gemma as this content expert around emotional labor. And um, she followed up with the book that she wrote, Fed Up, which came out in 2020. So um, in this conversation, we're going to talk about what emotional labor is. um, And also, I think, importantly, about maternal anger and um, how that's a sort of necessary uh, fuel to keep some of this fire going. Um, I do recommend this episode. It would be a good one to share with your partner. If you have one, Um, Valentine's Day is coming up, which is a great time to talk about emotional labor, domestic labor, and just sort of the division of labor in general. So this could be a great conversation starter. Also, definitely want to check out the episode I did with Eve Rodsky um, called Fair Play. Fair Play is a great method to help folks, um, couples divide the labor and really talk about what's um, what each partner is carrying, including the mental load, including all of the invisible work that we know a lot of times moms end up doing. Um, So I highly recommend get yourself some um, fair play cards. There's a card deck with all of the the different things that we do and grab a glass of wine. Maybe one of you does the cooking, maybe you go out, whatever, but have that conversation and have many conversations about the division of labor in your home. Nothing sexier, I know. Okay. Well, That is all I have to say in the intro, but I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation with Gemma Hartley. Hello, welcome. I'm here today with Gemma Hartley. Gemma, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you for having me on. This is really wonderful to talk to you. You have been kind of having some of the conversations that I have been having 
before I even was having them. So um, you wrote a very um, popular article that then turned into a book and the book is called Fed Up and you really um, helped us have a cultural conversation about the emotional labor that women were doing, are doing in um, relationships and um, that's been super helpful. So I'm really excited to talk to you. Why don't you kind of start with just giving us an introduction um, beyond that and kind of let us know about your work and then your mom. Can you tell us about kind of where you are in motherhood? Yeah. So that article in Harper's Bazaar, I wrote back in 2017. So it's been six years now since that article came out. And we didn't really have language to talk about emotional labor and the mental load, at least not in the mainstream. And now, like all of the books that I've been reading lately have delved so deeply into the topic. And it's really exciting to see how that conversation has expanded. Um, Since that article came out, I obviously wrote my book, Fed Up. I still talk about it all the time. Um, I think the topic of emotional labor and the mental load and all of the invisible work that women do is not going away anytime soon. (laughs) And uh, I'm currently also working on a second book and uh, doing writing coaching as well. And then as far as motherhood, I am in a really nice sweet spot right now. My kids are 8, 10, and 12, which Mm -hmm. are much easier ages than when I was originally writing my book. Uh, My kids were two, four, and six. It was a really intense parenting time. And I'm glad that I wrote the book then because I was still so immersed in it. I think I sometimes forget how difficult it is to have really small Mm -hmm. kids in the house. And I'm constantly reminded as many of my friends now have small children, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember how insanely difficult that time of life was. Totally. Yeah. It's, um, I think it's helpful when, when we let folks know that it it gets easier, it gets better. My oldest is 11 and my youngest is five. So they're spread out a bit, but yeah, I think it's starting to feel, um, easy easier but just like less intense you know as far as like a physical the physical need they have right they certainly have emotional needs but it's um you kind of get to see how they develop and how they're like they're turning out okay you know like a lot of the fears that you have um when you're a new parent you don't you don't know how things are gonna go so I think that's just always a good message um to share with folks Yeah, I I really hate it when people say like, oh, it just gets harder in different ways. And yeah, it's true that things ramp up in intensity emotionally. But I think the physical and like mental exhaustion of caring for young kids is so much harder. And I think we do a disservice to mothers of young kids when we act like the older years aren't easier. Mm -hmm. I think we just have like a selective memory of like, oh, yeah, well, we were carrying them around a lot. But now I have to deal with these complex issues of like, we're traversing middle school and figuring out a lot Mm -hmm. of those complex emotional issues. It's still so much easier than feeling like I couldn't go to the bathroom alone. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. And we tend to romanticize that period of time too, right? So that's also where there's like this dissonance between the experience often of, wait, this is really hard. I can't go to the bathroom or get to like get sleep or, you know, have time to myself and I'm supposed to like treasure every moment. Right. So I think that there's so much going on there um, in the beginning years. Yeah. And I think it's easy to do that when you look back at like all of the moments that you have encapsulated in memory, in photos And you look back and see their cute little faces and little voices. And you're just like, oh, yeah, it was so sweet. I have the privilege of looking back at a lot of writing that I did during Mm -hmm. that time and how intensely difficult that time of life was. And so I get a more balanced view when I look into my own past because of that. Being a writer has really helped me stay grounded in the fact that it was not all sunshine and roses. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And you're a new parent. So there's so much growing there and you're new in your relationship, right? This transition that's happening with your partner. So can you talk about kind of what was going on for you at the time when you started to write this article and then the book? Yeah. So what inspired the article was uh, Mother's Day 2017, when I finally kind of honed in on the fact that what was bothering me so much wasn't that my husband didn't do anything in the house. He did anything that I asked him to do, which made him an exceptional partner by our society standards. The thing was, I didn't want to have to ask. I wanted to have a partner who took equal initiative. And I just had this sort of aha moment that day after so many things had piled up. And I was like, that's that's the thing. I don't want to have to ask you. I want you to be in this with me. And that opened up this whole new conversation of what it looks like to actually be equal partners. It's not just equal amounts of domestic labor. It's equal amounts of the mental load and emotional labor that go into parenting as well. Right, right. And I I was uh, looking over the article again and, and remember how you talked about sort of um, like you, you laid out a very relatable, common dynamic of, you know, he, him wanting to be your husband wanting to sort of like give you what you wanted in an easy way to, you know, do the, okay, no, I'm just going to do the cleaning while you sit and have to parent your kids, which, you know, we, it's not about like not wanting to be with kids, but on mother's day, right. Especially when it's supposed to be like maybe a time for you to feel special or, or I don't know, Mother's Day is a whole thing we could break down, but like right, the, that he want, he wanted to do, just do it and make it okay. And that meant that you were still holding all of the responsibility, right? That it's so hard to just like transfer their whole responsibility without a lot of work, without a lot of discussion, um, and I think you talked about sort of nagging. Can you say more about like how you see, you know, the conversation around women nagging, um, like that, oh, where yeah. that comes from? Yeah. Yeah. I've talked about this extensively. I think the word nag is so strange because it's the only, well, perhaps not the only word, but it's a word that really tells the behavior of the person using it. Because if someone is nagging you, it means that you did not listen to them the first time. It means that you are not following through. It means that you need to be directed. And it means that you're not doing what you said you'd do. And so to be a nag is to be ignored. To be a nag means that no one is listening to what you are asking of them. No one is supporting you in your needs. Mm -hmm. And so nagging really says so much less about you than it does about the person calling you a nag. Yeah, it's like it's it's an unwanted thing. It's not it's not cute. It's not attractive. It's not you know. So you, nag is like somebody who is really asking something unreasonable of you, um, and it kind of goes, I think, with like defensiveness. So you, you talked about that also in the article of just sort of the response when you bring these things up, right? When you dare to, to nag or dare to sort of um, complain, then there's like often like this defensiveness that comes up and there's like a calculation you have to do. Do I want to deal with that? Do I want to, you know, combat that? Or do I just sort of find ways of kind of just taking it on my own, like that might be easier, right? It's really hard for women to be the ones that then also be in charge of changing it. So what's been your kind of experience of that? Even thinking about like who you're writing the book for, how how did that come up for you? Yeah, this is something that I also brought up in the article. And what I wrote about was talking about emotional labor becomes emotional labor. You can't bring it up without going through all these hoops. You have to bring it up in the right tone. You have to bring it up at the right time. You have to use language that isn't going to trigger defensiveness. And it's so much extra work that a lot of times women just won't do it. They don't want to bring it up with their partner. It's easier not to rock the boat. And so they let things go on the way they've been going on, even though 
you know, bringing all of those things up in the moment, yes, it's going to be really hard. But when you look at, okay, you've got a whole lifetime ahead with this person, wouldn't it be better to have that fight now mm-hmm. and figure things out so that you can go into the future and have a more equal partnership? I get why people don't though, because when you're already mm-hmm. overwhelmed with motherhood, when things feel so intense, adding one more thing to your plate feels like it's too much. And it really is this sort of catch 22 where our partners rely on us a lot for that education of what it looks like to step up and do that work. Um, It is one of the reasons I'm really glad that this has become a more mainstream conversation because I've noticed there are a lot more men in the space talking Mm -hmm. about this and showing other men how to take the mental load from their partners. I think that is so important to have Mm -hmm. men having these conversations outside of their partnerships, having those conversations with other men so that they can learn from each other, so that they can grow together, and so that they can take off that burden of responsibility for women who feel like they need to do all the education, do all the hand-holding, because that's another job on top of what they're already doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's so interesting how we come to this place with, as women, just like having all of this socialization. And that not, it doesn't mean that we feel necessarily good at, at all of these skills of running a home or sort of being a parent. It doesn't mean that we feel confident, but that there is some... Um, something like kind of lined up in front of us that we see that we're supposed to do, which is very different than, than for men. And then we find ourselves here and women also have had to really in a patriarchy, right. Learn about how men work. Right. So even like what you're saying, I have to find ways to not trigger defensiveness. That is a survival skill for women, right. To sort of figure, how can I, be honest? How can I set a boundary? How can I reject a man without getting sort of a backlash is a skill that we learn in the patriarchy. So we, and we've had to understand men, right? Where men haven't really learned to understand women. And now here they are in a relationship with with a woman, especially once kids come in and are having to like learn this whole language. It feels like such a like a terrible way to set set us up, right? We're sort of set up to fail. Um, and so as a mom, you know, this is one place where we try to think about like, what can we, what kind of power do we have as parents? I'm curious for you, how do you think about all of that? It's a lot of pressure, right? But sort of in like preparing your children for the future. Yeah, well, I'll say when you were saying, you know, we learn all about men and our roles but men don't learn about us. I also think men don't learn about themselves. Yeah. yeah. I think they don't understand how their emotions work, how their conditioning works. And we are so hyper aware of our own conditioning and of men's conditioning that we're seeing this really full picture that they're not. And I know a lot of the work that my own partner has done in recent years is, you know, because I'm so immersed in the literary world, I'm bringing him books for him to better understand his own experience, not just mine, but his as well. Um, You know, books like The New Masculinity or Liz Plank's uh, For the Love of Men. Mm -hmm. I think those are really great books for men to read and understand their own conditioning, because I think that's something where we really fail men as well. And so when I think about my power as a mother, um, I think a lot of it is in the modeling work that me and my husband do. I also think it's a lot with raising our children to be self-aware so that they do not perpetuate these stereotypes and this cultural conditioning that the rest of the world is going to give them. Yes, I so agree with men not being raised to be self-aware and that is yeah it's harmful to them and it's um yeah i mean even thinking about with kids like you know being self-aware is something that 
I think in the past wasn't a value and you see everyone going to therapy, right? Like that's the way to develop self-awareness in our like current culture, right? Is like if you go to therapy and you like work it out and somebody helps you with that. And so as parents, like, is there something we can do to kind of, right, like gently over long-term kind of nurture that self-awareness so that it doesn't have to be such a big kind of event of like, I'm going to go to therapy and figure myself out. Um, and and so I think that that's like super important, especially if you think about like emotion regulation, being able to like know yourself, know what you're feeling, what you're needing. Like these are all skills that we need as as people, as humans that we haven't been taught. And a lot of women haven't been taught really. Like there's ways that many of us have maybe figured it out, right? But explicitly being taught that, I don't, I don't think our generation really had that either. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I think that millennials are really the first generation of parents that are really involving themselves in the emotional lives of their children in a way that they're trying to nurture kids that are self-aware, kids that have self-compassion. And I think that's really good to see. Like, it makes me really hopeful for the future to see the way that we are trying to parent full humans Mm -hmm. rather than raise little adults, which is very much Mm -hmm. the way that I feel like I was raised. Um, there were expectations that were adult expectations placed mm-hmm. on me as a child. And so a lot of the emotion regulation and self-compassion and just self-awareness was stuff that I had to learn as an adult. And I look back and, you know, my parents did better than their parents. And, sure. it's you know, like everyone's doing the best that they can with what they have. And I think we have gotten to a point where we've been able to give our kids better than we received. Mm-hmm. So, so shifting a little bit um, in thinking about that, um, feminism, right, is like part of the the discussion here. I'm wondering for you, you know, have you always? Are you a feminist? Have you always been a feminist? How has motherhood has it impacted that? What are your thoughts about that? Yes, unapologetically, (laughs) definitely a feminist. Obviously, like I am a feminist author and it's, uh, you know, my my book shows up in feminist lists. It's very much focused on feminism, which at its core is that we deserve to be treated equally. And it's also an acknowledgement of the patriarchy that we're living in. And I grew up in an evangelical community where feminism was sort of a dirty word. Mm -hmm. And I was taught growing up that feminism was a direct attack on anyone who wants to be a mother, anyone Mm -hmm. who wants to stay at home, anyone who chooses a certain lifestyle that isn't like bra burning lesbians. (laughs) And so I grew up with this very, very skewed vision of what a feminist was, even though at my core, I think I have always been a feminist. I believed in my right to make those choices, and I believed in women's rights to make choices that were different than mine, which was not a part of my upbringing, but something that I was always like, well, if it's not hurting anyone, why would it matter? And so I have definitely always been a feminist and I think motherhood really ramped up the way that I thought about feminism, um, the ways in which I was able to see the institution of motherhood as opposed to the relationship of motherhood. That's something that um, Freckled Hahn mm-hmm. talks about a lot, mm-hmm. like motherhood as a relationship and caregiving as a job. Uh, I think for me, it makes more sense to think about like there is the institution of motherhood that we are all working through and there is motherhood as a relationship. And I think that's something that feminism has really allowed me to tease apart and allowed me to really cherish my relationship with my kids while also fighting really hard against the 
institution of motherhood that is failing mothers. Yes. Can you can you help us even like separate that out for folks listening, thinking like what's the difference between the institution of motherhood and the relationship of motherhood? What are you thinking about when you say that? So the relationship of motherhood is really straightforward, like how I relate to my kids, the way I love my kids, the way I want to raise them. And the institution of motherhood is the conditions in Mm -hmm. which I am forced to do that. And so when I think about the institution of motherhood, I am thinking about the way that we have set up the medical system to not care for mothers. I remember really clearly when I became a mom, um, the fact that everyone in the hospital only called me mom. And I kept thinking, like, my name has to be on the paper that they're looking at right now. Like, it's on my chart. Why do they only call me mom? And why are they only talking to me and not my husband? And I really experienced an erasure of my identity and a real lack of care because Mm -hmm. people would ask how the baby is doing. And there was not a lot of care for how I was doing past giving me a few pain meds the day after or like hours after I gave birth. I got one postpartum checkup and then they kind of call it good, let you go. And then there is the lack of support that we give mothers. You know, there is no subsidized childcare for mothers. And that often leads to moms dropping out of the workforce to care for children full time. We're also often in charge of elder care. A lot of people are part of that sandwich generation where they are caring for parents and for young children at the same time. I know a lot of Gen X moms are in that position right now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Just the conditions of motherhood and the way that they have been set up, and it is purposefully set up, really makes it difficult to mother and to nurture that relationship of motherhood. Yes, yes. And I like how you said that it's purposeful because I think think we need to acknowledge that, right? this doesn't feel like rocket science and this isn't new, right? Like the way it's set up, um, those are fixes that I think we could, if we had, if we valued families, if we valued mental health, if we value, I mean, if we valued a healthy society, we we could structure the our society differently. Why do you think, do you have ideas about kind of what's, maintaining the status quo like why like who who served in this uh setup here i mean i it's pretty obvious in our society that it is set up for white cisgender heterosexual men and you know when you were saying like who is doing this like is it is it too much to just say Republicans? <laughs> because honestly, <laughs> yeah. um, when we talk about creating policy that is going to serve mothers, that is going to serve families, it is being blocked on that political level by Republicans over and over again. Mm-hmm. Because although they will say that motherhood is really important, they have a lot of morality values, mm-hmm. they don't want to put their money where their mouth is when it comes to actually supporting mothers, to supporting children, to creating a healthy environment in which kids can thrive. Yeah. I mean, I think that's where there's like the intersection with capitalism, right? Like there's a, there were, maybe there's some sense of like, if we, if we put resources towards mothers, towards women, towards families, towards underserved, that will take away money and power from the current sort of holders of that, which are, like you said, white, cisgendered, heterosexual men. Um, And so, yeah, like this is, and yet there's like this um, not very well veiled sort of facade of um, family values. Like that's actually... (laughs) That's the slogan, right, that the Republican Party is, like, the family values party. So, yes, thank you for, like, specifically naming that. 
I mean, this is political. We're all, what we're talking about, like in order to make the changes that we desperately need, we need political changes to happen. So I think you're, you're right on the money there. Um, what, uh, what's it been like for you since, since having this kind of conversation, um, started with your article? Like, what's it been like to see how folks have been kind of continuing that conversation, right? I'm sure you're, like you said, there's many new books and new voices and kind of perspectives adding to the discussion. Where, where do you think we are now compared to even a few years ago? It's really difficult because in one sense, I am really, really hopeful about the future. I love seeing how broad this discussion has become, how much more aware we are of the problems facing mothers. And it's really, really frustrating to watch as over the past few years, we have not only not made forward progress politically, but have actually taken quite a few steps back. Sure. And so it's really difficult to watch that happen. Um, but I do keep a lot of hope because there, you know, there have been these little flashes of light. Like when we were in the pandemic, we had the child tax credit where mm -hmm. I, for the first time, was in some way being compensated for mothering and for doing the domestic and care work of my home. And I was like, gosh, what a difference this would have made when I was a young mother, when I was really struggling financially, this would have made a world of difference. And so there's like that little glimmer of hope, like, okay, so we can do this. We mm -hmm. could pay mothers in order to boost the economy, in order to make sure that kids have access to everything that they need. We have the means to do that. And so having those little glimmers of hope, even though they're getting smashed back down, it tells me that we're on the right path. And so I can foresee policy in the future getting better. I just don't think it's going to happen as fast as any of us want it to. Um, I think we're having really great conversations with our partners and culturally the narrative is shifting, but culture takes a while to shape policy. And so, you know, I, I even see me and my own partner coming up against this where we're doing the most that we can to parent equally, and we're still running into the barriers set up by the institution of motherhood. Yeah, um, I often think that we're, our relationships are kind of set up to be the sort of focus of all of these societal problems because, like, when you talk about the village, like, there is there really often is no village um, or it's a paid village for folks who have the privilege to pay for the village, right? And so we're, we often just look at our partners and, and sort of all of our – frustrations can really kind of be projected even beyond what's happening between the two of you because both of you are feeling so like taxed right and so um i think we should that helps me sometimes to acknowledge that too that it's not just my partner's like not a good one or something right uh, i don't mean that me and myself but just sort of like in general people think about this because this is such a cultural phenomenon this is such a problem that if you you can look into many different families and that's the benefit of these conversations the benefit of social media even though social media is a mixed bag like but sort of hearing that many people are struggling with it that can be helpful um so that we don't just put all of that resentment from society toward our partners um because there's a lot of anger right and even as you were talking about like how we've gone backwards, how we're not as far as we need to be. Like I can, I can feel it. Like I can feel the like frustration. Um, and that's hard to carry uh, around like, and our, 
I know it comes out sideways for me and my partner and certainly it can come out to your children. It can come out, you know, so I guess I'm just curious, like kind of as someone who's been doing this work and holding all of this, what's that like for you to kind of hold this anger and try to channel it in meaningful ways, but still feel frustrated? It's difficult. I mean, I really love being able to use anger as an energetic force. It really fuels my creativity um, in regards to my writing. Like right now, the book proposal that I have out in the world is tentatively titled, No One Loves an Angry Woman, which is sort of how I was raised to view my own anger. No one will love you if you carry this anger around with you. And what all of my adult life has been has been really like renegotiating my relationship with my anger and learning that not only does it not make me unlovable, it actually makes me more effective as a person, Mm -hmm. as a mother, as a partner. If I am not angry enough to want change, then what, what good am I doing in the world? And, you know, you can make an argument that like, well, you don't have to be angry to make change. I think anger, especially for women, is absolutely necessary for change because we are taught to tamp down anger, to go with, you know, all of the cultural conditioning that we've received. And that anger was really the only thing that pulled me out of accepting the way things were. Yes, I completely agree that anger is super powerful, especially when there's an injustice. And I, it's funny because as a therapist, when, when women come to me often with anxiety or depression, I almost always see unexpressed anger kind of underneath it. And, and sometimes therapists like to say, well, anger is just like a surface emotion and underneath it is like this like hurt. And that can be true, but I think we, we dismiss anger in its its own right. I think anger, like you're saying, is powerful because it means like having some sense of justice, of 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 respect. I, I deserve respect, or somebody else deserves respect. And I think that is like healthy <laughs> to have a sense of what you what you deserve, what a person deserves. And often it comes with a lot of empathy, right? A lot of you know, sort of. I, I'm I'm feeling and I'm aware of something someone's hurting or I'm hurting. Um, so yeah, I, I completely agree. And and I often just love to help women kind of like tap into it and figure out how to how to channel it into something that feels meaningful. I think we we do it does anger like forces us to move. Like we need to like move with it. I'm like as I'm, we're talking, my hands are like all over the place. Like I just feel like <laughs> you know, it's like there's an energy to it. And if we don't use that energy, it can be heavy, right? And I think we can go into hopelessness. And I see folks who can, you know, stop in in kind of like pause and fall fall into a depression kind of place. Obviously, depression is more complicated than that. But I'm just saying, like, I, it is heavy, and so I do think we need to figure out how to how to channel it. And it's exhausting to keep doing that over the long term. So I, I feel like I'm in that place of trying to like t- take breaks and find some humor and find some, you know, but also continue the the advocacy. And I see, I see you doing that as well. So I think we also need solidarity too of like, yeah, this work is hard. Yeah, it is hard, but I, I think anger keeps the work going to be honest. Like, um, Soraya Chamali's book, Rage Becomes Her, came out around the Mm -hmm. same time as my book. And I love how she puts it as like, rage is clarity. Mm -hmm. It's how you see what is wrong and have focus to change it. And that's something that I really like carry with me in my work now. I'm like, no, rage is clarity. Rage is what is going to help me channel my energy in the right direction because it helps me see clearly where I'm hurting, what is wrong. And it points me in the direction of solution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what about 
let's thinking about maybe a mom who's in the early days. This is kind of this is kind of intense, right? Just sort of, you know, if you're a new mom, this may not you might, may not be ready for this conversation. But usually, um, you know, in a in a few months, you start to kind of notice these things. I'm curious for you, like, you know, what would it be like to hear these conversations as a new mom? Like, what what would be helpful at that time? I think what would be helpful is to have your partner listening to these conversations. Mm. Because honestly, when you are a new mother, you are so enmeshed (laughs) in that phase of life and you need someone who is doing it with you, not someone that you have to delegate to, because that is a whole nother job in and of itself. And I think that the earlier we can get partners involved, the better. And again, the institution of motherhood makes this hard because paternity leave is not a thing in the U.S. It does not exist. And so at most, a lot of men are taking one, maybe two weeks. And that is not enough time to recover from what is often a very traumatic birth experience because of our medical system. So you're not even through the like recovering from this huge life event let alone getting into routine, learning these rhythms, learning everything that you need to know from ground zero. Mm -hmm. And if you have a partner who is actively engaged in doing that work and creating that life with you, that's what you need. And so I don't think new moms need to take anything more on their plate. I think their partners do. Yes, I totally agree. So let's say right now, you know, a mom's listening to this and she says, okay, I'm going to pause. I'm going to share this with my partner. What would you like to say? What do we think partners um, who are who are trying their best, who maybe didn't have the socialization, weren't taught how to be sort of emotionally maybe engaged, how to sort of carry the mental load, their new dads perhaps, what what kinds of things could we maybe start them with in thinking about how they can help support their partners? Yeah. So the first thing I would say is follow people who talk about this. Don't rely on your partner to educate you. Like, yes, they are probably listening to all of these things and they have it nailed down. There are educators out there doing the work. Find them. So, Mm -hmm. you know, like I try to sit in that education space. I also think listening to men who are in that education space is really good. Um, Real Zach ThinkShare Mm -hmm. is one that uh, really breaks down like where he adds mental load in for his wife. And Mm -hmm. I think that's really useful for men to listen to and understand how even when you think you're doing the right thing, you might be adding more to your partner's plate. And I think a lot of the work is just in noticing, like pay really close attention Mm -hmm. to your life, to what is going on in your house as much as you can and start to do things without being asked, because that is really the first step is taking that mental load away, allowing things to be done and doing them without expecting praise, I think is another big one. Mm -hmm. Um, me and my partner are now at a point where like, we're really great about thanking each other for the work that we do. But I know I probably miss half of it, same Mm -hmm. as he does for me, because there is so much that it takes to keep a life moving forward. And so if I notice that he's done something, I'll always thank him for it. He does the same for me. But that expectation of praise is not the reason that we do this work. Yeah, noticing is like <clears throat> attuning, right? Attunement is really important to relationships. Being able to tune into what somebody is feeling and then tune into your environment, thinking about having an image in your mind of the people you love and kind of what they might be feeling or thinking or needing. Right? These are again skills that women tend to learn. What's everyone feeling in the room, right? Okay, it's it's a holiday. All the women are thinking about everyone's diet, you know, needs or what is this person comfortable? This person has a 
you know, an injury and they need, right. Like we are taught to do this. So from, from men who, who aren't taught that, like you're saying, no notice and feel a sense of kind of ownership responsibility of the things that you notice can be something to really practice. But then also like you're saying to, to look externally to sort of learn. And that's a tricky one. And one that I often think about because you know, moms nowadays, they're all on social media, listening to podcasts, they're, they're, they're watching the, the Dr. Becky's and the whatever, like they're learning for experts how to parent, right? How to, what am I supposed to do next? What do, how am I parenting? Okay, how do I handle a toddler tantrum? Like, even in their, their da- quote, downtime, this is what a lot of mothers are doing. They're consuming that content. They're listening to podcasts to learn. They're reading books. And the problem that I often hear is like, well, my, my husband's not on social media. They won't, they don't, that they, they aren't using their downtime this, in those ways. They tend to have better at hobbies, right? Kind of thinking about things that maybe are, have nothing to do with parenting, right? And so I think that is such a shift to be able to think, you know what, actually, I actually need to catch up, <laughs> you know? And so spending some, actual spending some time to, learn is really important and not something that I think many men have been sort of, that's not an expectation that I think a lot of men have. So I just want to really like validate that point that it's not frivolous to just like scroll on social media. If you're, if you're following people who are helping you, you continue to think about, like we have to kind of keep thinking about it, especially if it's different than how we were raised. Right. Absolutely. And So if you are, you know, on social media and your partner is as well, if you're having some like decompression, disassociation (laughs) time on the couch, like for men, ask your partner, like, who are five people that you would like me to follow? Like, be intentional, intentional about getting your algorithm right so that you can do that learning. Take the time when you are cleaning and noticing what needs to be done to listen to some of the same podcasts that your partner listens to. It has to be intentional. You're not just going to learn these things by osmosis. Like your partner is not learning these things because they are naturally better at it. It is because of conditioning and it is because we are spending a lot of time intentionally learning about how to parent better, honestly, about how to like keep our homes organized and clean Mm. and following the home edit and things like that. Like We spend so much time and energy thinking about these things. And for men, it's going to take some really concerted effort to get yourself to that level. I don't want to dismiss it. It's not easy work to do, especially when you haven't been raised with it. But you do have to take the initiative and start to engage with that learning because otherwise you are just showing up and expecting your partner to do the work of learning for you. Yeah. And that you risk a lot of resentment, right? And, uh, you know, if one person doesn't feel like the partnership feels equitable, that, that impacts both of you. Um, so yes, I think that's super important. And also like, it means seeing these things as valuable, as important, organizing your home, taking care of your home, seeing that as an important part of like creating like safety and security and love for your family versus like, that's not important to me. I don't care. It's not about like, it needs to look fashionable or or like it needs to look perfect, but understand that there's a, the things that we tend to think that we tend to, um, uh, what's the word, evaluate women on how clean your home is, what you're wearing. Are you organized? Are you together? Did you remember all the things? Does your kid kind of have everything they need when they go off into the world? Like all these things that can, I think, often be dismissed as, well, I'm not that good about that. I don't care about that. I don't, you know, we have to recognize that they do have value and maybe kind of talking with your partner about what is the value of that? What, why is it feel important to have things feel organized or 
Um, you know, because I think dismissing it as like something frivolous is really common. Yeah. And I think the reason that that happens is because women associate those things with their self-worth. Yes. And that is not the standard for men at all. Right. Right. Um, you get to be exceptional for doing far less than your partner. And so it takes a lot of concerted effort to not only, you know, rise to that level where you're considered good, I want you to rise to the level that your partner is at and to agree upon what that looks like. I talk a lot about creating shared standards. And so it doesn't mean that you're going to live up to this arbitrary standard that your wife makes for you. Um, but you're going to talk about together, what does it take to create systems that work for our life? How do we come together and reevaluate as seasons change, as the kids get older? It's a constant conversation and it's really what it takes to be in a partnership versus be in a marriage that reflects that patriarchal institution. And I personally really want a partnership that lives outside of what we were raised in. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Gemma. I feel like I've taken a lot of your time. I really appreciate you being here. Um, can you tell us all like kind of where folks can find you and any kind of projects and things you have going on? Yeah. So usually I'm most active on Instagram. I'm at Gemma L. Hartley. And I've also got my website, uh, GemmaHartley.com. I'm really bad about updating it, but I'm trying. <laughs> um, I'm currently doing writing coaching. I'm not taking on any new clients right now, but hopefully next year I will be. And I'm also, again, like working on a second book right now as we're recording this. Uh, the book proposal is out in the world with publishers, and hopefully there will be a book deal to announce soon. Oh, so exciting. Thank you again for, for coming. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. That's the show. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the Feminist Mom Podcast. Thank you to my guest, Gemma Hartley. If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to subscribe and leave me a review. You can also support the podcast by becoming a paid supporter. Donate just a few dollars a month to help me bring these conversations to more moms worldwide. You can find me on Instagram at feminist.mom.therapist or on the podcast website, feministmompodcast.com. Until next time.